Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Universal Dialect Show. I'm your host, Chris Cipher 777 Cabrera. And I have a fantastic guest today. And the hits just keep coming and coming. I got another great one for you. Um, this individual, um, I saw him on, well, not saw him, but I heard him on uh, two of my favorite podcasts, The Higher Side Chats and also uh, Tinfoil Hat with Sam Tripoli. And the reason why I have him on is because of the things that he was saying, not only because I'm interested in the topics of itself, but they have a connection with me. And we'll get into that. Um, he's a paranormal experiencer plus investigator. He's also an author of an awesome book called The Children of Orion, Finding the Crypto Terrestrials. Welcome my guest today, Ryan Musgrave Evans. How you doing, my brother? I'm well, man. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, man. Um, so like I said, I, I I saw you on a, you know, not saw you. I keep saying seeing you, but I mean, I had to look you up anyway. And I saw you and I saw the awesome beard that you have. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I got to have this. I got to have this dude on. Um, uh, yeah. So we're yeah, just so, discussing. Yeah. We were yeah, just discussing uh, the potential for it to be used as a paintbrush as well. Yeah, I know that's I'm Doubles telling up. you, man. You're like the next <laughs> level Bob Ross, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you were on you were on a couple of uh, the podcasts that I love love to listen to, and there was a lot of stuff that you were talking about. So first off, you're you're out of Australia, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I live on the Mornington Peninsula, which is. Uh, like south of melbourne so in victoria in, in the extreme southeast of australia the state and, of victoria and, that's and correct or not is that area because from what i understand there's like a it's a hotbed for a lot of paranormal cryptids ufos uh, and, and you yeah, also have sure. like you also have like a, a from what i understand like um a, a version of area 51 out there uh yeah well well sometimes you might be referring to a pine gap which is in in the middle of australia um uh way far away from where i am but that but that is um a base u.s controlled base for the most part i mean it's supposed right. to be i think like dual national thing you get i think officially according to the law 50 percent of its employees are meant to be from the australian population but really it's an american uh base there and um yeah it has a lot of association people in ufology i think um in the scene uh, suggest that it that that it's like a kind of a Australian version of Area 51 in some ways. I think it's a it's an intelligence officially. It's like an intelligence gathering uh, uh, hub, um, and um, you know that's there's the iconic image of of Pine Gap is the big um, that look like golf balls on golf tees. These huge uh, uh, pieces of technology sitting out in the desert that are uh, picking up lots of information from satellites and whatnot. But um, yeah, but but Victoria, where I am as well, that's um, a lot of paranormal activity. Yeah, for sure. Um, especially uh, over Bass Strait, the strip of ocean between strip of sea between Victoria on the mainland and the state of Tasmania, which is the island there below the mainland. That strip of sea called Bass Strait is um, paranormal hotspot. Sometimes people call it the Bass Strait Triangle. Right. Um, and uh, over 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 the years huge amounts of aircraft and um sea vessels and people have gone missing without trace sometimes with trace but quite often with no trace uh, and also lots and lots of um you know uso and ufo sightings and things like that around that strip of water there yeah and that's that's right where i am i'm in the mornington peninsula so our ocean beach here uh back straight onto bass strait 
Um, yeah. And what about like uh, the Yowie? You have incidents uh, of the yeah, Yowie out there? Yeah, yeah. The, there's lots of um, people that are interested in in, in Yowie hunting and, and Yowie research and things like that. I've, I haven't touched on a huge amount of that myself personally. Don't know that much about that. But yeah, the Yowie's the like the Australian version of of Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Um, and the word Yowie is from Indigenous language. Um, uh, and there are a few different mythical creatures from uh, indigenous traditions in Australia that, um, um, you know, could conform to fairies or elves and things like that in European folklore, maybe. Uh, we, and um, there's the bunyip, which is a, a Victorian, indigenous Victorian word um, for for a kind of non-human entity, which is sometimes said to be hairy and things like that, like a yowie. Uh, then there's another group called the Mindai, which are from Aboriginal religion that were um, uh, dark spirits that were associated with snakes um, and and with, you know, uh, mythology surrounding serpents and snakes and dragon-like creatures and things is very big in, a, in an Indigenous Australian mythology. But the, the, the Victorian, especially the Mornington Peninsula sort of area of where I'm from, the, the Indigenous people here were called the Bunurong, or are called the Bunurong. There are still representatives, but... Um, they, in part of their traditions was um, the Mindai, which is which I find a fascinating uh, group um, that were um, uh, kind of spirit that was associated with snakes and things like that, earthbound spirits and things like that. But yeah, there's there's lots of rich folklore, interesting stuff that's possibly related to indigenous experiences uh, in pre-settlement times of interactions with you know. Uh, ETs, what we might call ETs today, that have sort of penetrated into their folklore and superstitions and religions and things like that, which I find interesting to research. Right. right. All right. Because, yeah, we're getting into that that direction eventually, because I, I know ahead of time what you're some some of what you're going to say. But before we, we get deep into it, can you give me your origin story um, and what led you on the path that you are now? And please spare no details. Yeah, cool. Um. Yeah. So I've been an experiencer of like what you might call high strangeness kind of phenomena all my life. Um, really early memories of um, waking up in the middle of the night and um, not being able to wake up family members and, and seeing lights in the sky going outside, seeing tall glowing luminous beings leaping into the sky and levitating down dark beings with glowing red eyes smaller beings galloping around on all fours that were not, at the time I thought were like um, uh, puppets. They were, they were like little puppets come to life. Um, and, and since then, with all my research and my further experiences, I now understand what these things are and have context and stuff like that. But in these early days, didn't know what to make of all this kind of stuff. Some of it incredibly scary, you know, being grabbed by them as well and thrown into what I thought was a sack or something at one stage. And they took off with me. Um, and stopped at one stage and opened it again and stroked me and then closed it when it was too frightened. And, um, and, and then also, you know, poltergeist like activity. Um, and, uh, and, uh, one particular, uh, event that happened quite early on. So I was almost five years old. I would have been turning five in a month. Um, uh, our family, it was traditional for us to go down to a local um, pine tree forest, like it was a golf course. And uh, we used to um, jump the fence. My, my brothers and sisters and I jumped the fence and, and like lop off a, a, a branch on a tree of a pine tree and drag it home and use 
put that in a bucket and say it was our Christmas tree, you know. And each year we'd do that traditionally. And one year we went down, I saw behind a tree um, some kind of creature uh, putting its wrapping its hands, really long uh, fingers wrapping its hands around the side of the pine tree, looking at me with a long face, like a tri- what I thought was like a triangular-shaped face which I thought of as being mask-like at the time, big dark eyes. Um, and I could see that its shoulders and arms looked like they were made out of the tree almost, like they were the, of the same texture as the, the bark on the, on the pine trees. Um, and it went behind the tree and back out the other side. And my brothers and sisters were off in the distance. And as they came back, they just walked straight past it as though they couldn't see it. Um, and that really um, stoked an interest, stoked the fire of passion for uh, what I thought were fairies or elves. And I've really got into, especially later on in my teenage years, the Celtic fairy faith and studying fairy lore and all that kind of stuff, because I thought I'd seen a fairy. That's how I interpreted it. That's how I interpreted it at the time. Um, and as I got older, as in my teenage years, I had more experiences with what I thought were elves or fairies. Um, I had a, a, a really full-on experience when I was about 20. I'm 43 by the, now, by the way. When I was about 20, I had a full-on experience where um, uh, a friend and I used to go camping in the Dandenong Ranges, which are east of Melbourne, mountain range. Uh, lots of big eucalypt forests there. Um, but I decided to go on my own one time and um, had this experience where, well, I'd sort of been, because I was interested in fairy lore and things like that as well, and I... I, I decided as well that there was some kind of basis in, in reality there, you know, because I'd seen them myself or seen something and I'd interpret, I was thinking these things, I think they are real, not quite sure what they are. But so I was projecting thoughts while I was camping, especially on my own this time, that I wanted to have an interaction with them, but also that I sort of, in a way, wanted to offer my services to them as well. This is what I was doing was part of the reason I was going. And I said, and I was interested in Wicca and Druidry and ne- right. neo-paganism and things as well what, at the what, time. What, and I sort of, Ryan, what, what gave you the impression that they were specifically at that place? Um, I just felt that if they were going to be anywhere, they were going to be there. I, I just had this feeling that um, uh, the, the, the Dandenong Ranges, Sherbrooke Forest National Park, um, I was thinking this mountainous region with these huge, you know, mountain ash eucalypts. I think they're like the second biggest tree in the world after after the um, the redwoods, North American redwoods. They get very. They're certainly the biggest flowering plant in the world. They have a, these um, uh, eucalyptus regnum, a certain kind of eucalypt tree, gum tree. Just get absolutely massive. You know, up to three hundred foot tall. Um, wow. So there's these forests blanketing the mountains there, and I thought if they're anywhere, they're there. You know, because uh, it's supposed to be subterranean dwelling beings in mountains and things like that from Celtic law. Um, so when I was camping, then I had experiences that now I, I have the terminology to sort of say I was, I was seeing orbs, I suppose you'd say. Um, but at the time, I was just sort of thinking there's these lights in the trees, don't know what they are. In, when I was in the tent, I felt very sort of complacent. I felt like apathetic, like I wasn't having the strong emotional reactions you think you should be having in a situation like that, um, which I've come to understand later on is part of their mental manipulation and play where they can actually suppress and downplay your critical faculties and your emotional responses and things like that and have this sort of blanket of 
of calming you down over you, which I think that was that was what was happening then. But um, then I could hear people running around the tent, touching the tent, hands on the tent, um, and then experience some missing time where suddenly it was morning. Um, I, I was up there for a, a couple of nights, um, but the second day I heard. Now this is another feature, and it's a technological feature, but. At the time, I was sort of thinking of this as being quasi-spiritual or something like that. Um, although the, the boundaries between the dichotomy of spirituality and materialism sort of breaks down with the level of the technology they're talking, we're talking about here, where they, you have te technologies based on material, nuts and bolts, technologies that are so advanced to us, they appear as magic or spiritual, and it sort of gets a bit messy. But um, at the time, um, I didn't have this association as them being sort of related to UFOs or high technologies and things like that. I was sort of thinking of it more being a, a spiritual experience in some way. Um, but they had, they said to me uh, with a, a, a powerful thought, like um, sort of a, a noiseless voice, like the kind of voice you'd have if you're reading silently to yourself, a silent reading voice kind of thing but expressed much more quickly in a shorter space of time than you could actually speak it. You know, really quickly articulated sentences, like packets of information. Um, and, they, and they said, we will hold you to the bargain. That's what they expressed then. And I was, and then now that years later, when I first, when I moved back down to where I'd come from in the Mornington Peninsula was where I was born and grew up and things like that. But I, spent years living away in the Dandenong Ranges and also in Melbourne in the city and things like this. But when I returned, then the experiences I was having, they took on a, did a bit of a different turn um, and they became more stereotypically ET UFO kind of related phenomena, what you'd associate with that sort of modern UFO law, um, more you know, like clinical procedures being levitated, taken up into craft, over the top of, like out from our house, over the port, under under the roof of the porch, and up into craft and things like that, um, with tall, thin people in medical gear, medical robes with long, really long fingers with devices with their fingers, four long fingers that spread out and can oppose each other, and the, but the, so they're opposable. The fingers are opposable, and their thumbs uh, diminutive vestigial and further up their arm and feeling around in my mouth checking my teeth and messing with the back of my head and putting something in the back of my head which later I realized when I asked them they said it was a transmitter but intense pain pushing stuff up into the base of my skull and all this so the sort of more like and then I was like okay some very more sort of quintessential UFO kinds of phenomena um and while that was happening they'd said to me in the more recent experiences, they said to me, will we hold you to that bargain? And, and that's when I made that association then between sort of alien, you know, UFO, ET kind of close encounter stuff and fairy lore made that kind of bit of a connection in my head and thought, I think this is this continuity of experience on my life. It's explainable by the same kind of base reality, the same kind of um, primary cause, same race, you know, of people, whatever. Um, and that then stoked my fire to get interested in ufology, UFO research and things like that, which I hadn't had much of an interest in in my life, a little bit of an interest, but nothing too extreme. 
Um, I've sort of been interested in science fiction and things like that as I was in my teens and stuff like that, but not necessarily paying too much attention to you what, what you could call ufology as a, as a discipline. Of. Um, and uh, yeah, so 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 basically, dude, that's um that's sort of like an overview of what's been going on in the last ten years or so. I've had been having very very intense experiences uh, with these people, this particular race right. of people, which caused me to go looking for them, listening to the things they're telling me, their physical appearance, the kinds of technologies they use, the way they sound, the kinds of languages they speak, and uh, um, seeking them in folklore and in other people's experiences. And then that's my first book, you know, where I'm building a crypto terrestrial profile, a CT profile, I call it where I'm looking for these beings um, in traditions through time and other people's experiences and things like that, slowly building up a, a, a bigger picture and looking for them and trying to objectively demonstrate to people that they exist, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, trying as hard as I can. Wow, that's a, that's a lot to unpack. But let's, do it. Let, 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 let's unpack it. So um, you yeah. had said uh, that you this happened to you as, as a child. And that you had seen these beings do these weird things, you have uh, missing time, right? So this is where, like, I, I feel like I make the first connection. Uh, when I was, when I was a kid, I have a memory. I don't think it's a dream, but I have a memory of being a little kid. I know that uh, I was staying in a room with my younger brother. I have a younger brother; he's about four years younger than me, so I must have been like ten. He was probably like around five. Um. And this memory is, I'm in my room, it's at nighttime, we're, we're sleeping, and then I'm awakened by these beings that are floating in my room. But the thing is, I don't see who they really are. I believe they're, they got into my, it sounds weird, they got into my mind and they projected to me something that I was more comfortable with. And that would mm. be cartoon characters, All right. Specifically, yeah, yeah, yeah. specifically one, Captain Crunch was one. Because I was a fan of the cereal or whatever. Now it sounds silly, but you know, nice. and I don't mean to drag this out. But when I was in the military, as you know, I I told you I was at Nellis from '98 to 2002. Um, yeah. and in the late '90s, uh, Steven Spielberg did this miniseries called Taken. I don't know if you're aware of that show. It was a miniseries. Uh, no, I don't think so. If you Not get a sure. chance, really watch that because I I believe if you watch that, you might have the same reaction that I did because. I connect with that, with what was going on in that miniseries. But there's a scene in that miniseries where there's a child that's getting put to bed by his father. And as the, and once the father leaves and turns off the light, maybe a few moments later, there's a light projecting from outside, inside of the kid's room. And it looks like the kid is aware of that light or he recognizes what that light is. And this uh, cartoon sort of, character i think it's either a squirrel or a rabbit opens the window and beckons the child to come outside right and then the kid comes outside he sees this tree that has a door and the squirrel or whatever this animal is opens the door for him and the kid walks through it and then right as the the this animal is going to go inside of the the tree he breaks the fourth wall and looks at the camera winks and then the tree turns into a UFO and, and then it disappears. So that's an abduction scenario. 
right, and right. and the the Taken series is about how aliens abduct generation through generations. So they'll pick a family and they'll abduct all the family members throughout the generations. So when I saw that that scene, it really hit me hard, and it reminded yeah, me okay. of when I was younger and had that incident when I was younger. And then I've also yeah. had incidents where I've gone to sleep in the bedroom and I woke up somewhere else and didn't know how I got there. But anyway, so that's my connection to this. But you said that you've had uh, memories of them messing with the back of your head. Do you believe that they um, are implanted something back there that you may, you may have an implant back there? Yeah. For a while, I thought I wasn't sure if it was that they were taking a sample from me um, of something brain tissue even and felt like it was going in far enough to be something like that but then when i asked they responded presuming they're telling the truth as well but they responded um transmitter so um yeah so that would that would be an implant i suppose but um but yeah that, that's really interesting dude your experiences i mean uh, you know in ufology these days people say things like screen memories where they're you know like replacing memories and stuff like that but in older folkloric tradition with the fairies, you'd call it casting a glamouring or casting a glamour, you know, um, taking on, like you were saying, the form of something a person's more comfortable with interacting with to facilitate a more positive interaction, calm the person down and whatnot. Yeah, I think right. that, that's quite typical. Yeah, there's lots of people that talk about that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, that's um, part of their toolkit for the way they, they interact with us, for sure. That's their MO, essentially. Um, yeah. Have you have you had have you had the back of your head checked at all medically or X-rays? Just to no, see I haven't. I've never. No, there's other experiences where they I feel like they're doing things to me as well. I don't, um, you know, where they've like drilled into presumably a rib in my back and then under one of my feet and also in the top of my head. Um, and I asked what that was about, and she said, for language and running and i was like what what does that even mean like i am interested <laughs> in linguistics and i'm interested in trail running and things and i was thinking is that got anything to do with that and then she said um it's a gift stop going on about it and then i was thinking oh, okay and then i wasn't quite sure what that even meant because that could be ambiguous too like she's presenting me with a gift making an alteration to me in some way or that she thinks that maybe i have some kind of ability that they covered where they're like oh this guy's got an you know he's got a facility with learning languages that we might be interested in studying or something so it's still ambiguity there but but um yeah no but i've never actually had scan i've never gone to a med medical professionals sorry to answer your question uh no, no, it's and, and been checked out or anything like that um i don't uh i've never yeah, i'm just to? not interested in doing that i no, almost no, feel okay. like it's um i almost feel like it'd be uh what's the word i'm looking for um not impolite uh disrespectful uh, disrespectful yeah that's that's the one dude yeah it feel it feels now that may be them suggesting to me i got you not to do it and and you know um uh yeah because they they can suggest of course hypnotize mesmerize uh get inside your mind um make you have thoughts that aren't your own but that you think are your own and the idea that um, that I, it's the same with taking photos and things like that. Like when my daughter and I witnessed together a, a, tri, a, a 
a golden triangle moving through the sky craft during the day with pink hues and things on it um, that was oscillating in the sky and then shot out to be just a pinprick in the sky and then back down again. My, my daughter had a, her phone in her hand and she went to take a picture and I said, no, don't take a picture. I could just feel this feeling like it was a suggestion almost to me that that would not be appropriate. And then when just after that happened as well, the sides of my head started feeling really weird and I was thinking, I hope I'm not having a stroke. Uh, what's going on here? It almost felt like someone was putting their hands gently on either side of my head. Um, and so it felt really uncomfortable and I was turning my head. So I put my hat back on and then the feeling of the hat pushing against my head felt normal. And then after a few minutes, I took it off and the feeling was gone. Since then, I've, I'm reading a lot about of other, a lot of other people's experiences. I think maybe it had something to do with um, electromagnetism or something like a craft itself, even though we couldn't see it anymore, maybe it had even come down closer, but it'd be, but it cloaked. And then I, I was feeling it on me, you know, uh, so this sort of in, uh, effect, maybe that's what that was. I'm not quite sure. Right. A, a year and a half ago, my family and I witnessed a daytime sighting of a gold triangle that was oscillating oh, wow. here in Florida. And it, it just like, like, like the opacity of it, like changed and went from solid to just nothing oh wow cool <laughs> yes <go>. fucking crazy <laughs> man when you, when you say you're saying things that uh that connect to me uh a yeah, lot yeah. um all right so cool. this you, you you mentioned the she like how how do you know yeah. it's a she uh okay yeah so the the when they're communicating telepathically sometimes the voice can be obviously feminine don't tell me how because it's sort of noiseless, it's soundless, but it seems obviously feminine, sometimes obviously masculine, and sometimes neither in particular, just sort of neutral. But um, um, but oh, and in that particular on that particular occasion where um, I'd had the thing put in my head and foot, and, and I'd asked, and, and she'd said that um, you know it's a gift, don't go on about it. There had been a woman who wasn't dressed in the medical gear with and. So she didn't have like the black lenses over her eyes that, and just had her normal blue, huge blue eyes. Whereas the medics have black eyes, like they're putting lenses or something smart tech, presumably, I don't know. Um, but she was there, she'd been sitting next to the bed and then she walked around and then she's standing leaning against like a bench over on the other side of the room. And I felt that it was her that was doing this communication and I could see her and she was definitely a woman, female. Uh, but um but yeah, even if you can't see them, quite often you just get the vibe from the way of it, and I can't explain how that it's a woman saying something or a man. Right. Not not to get into too much of the technology now, because I kind of want to cover that a little bit later. But you had mentioned something again that made a connection to, and that's you said uh, the dark black eyes, which could be some form of technology, and that connects to I don't know if you're aware of Philip Corso. He wrote the day. Oh, yeah day after Roswell he talks about how when they got these beings they peeled what was like essentially um contacts almost oh, that right. the, yeah, the, yeah. the dark eyes that everybody sees they think that those are contacts like a certain technology and they get they got like some sort of like uh technology from that I don't, I don't want to go too much into that but that connects with that but let's get back to you know yeah, again yeah. um your experiences so 
you you have brothers and sisters, I presume, siblings. Do they have any inc incidents themselves, or is it just you? Are you the only one that's having these these things go on? Uh, I have in in the past. I have heard um, some of my siblings talking about having things happen, um, but uh, I won't go into detail about that because I don't. I mean, they're not out of the closet necessarily about this kind of stuff, right. and I don't think it's as intense and dramatic as the stuff that's been happening to me but who knows but um and my parents um wouldn't mind me talking a little bit about their stuff uh, but they've um they've had stuff happen to them over their lives as well which which sort of ties in again with what you were saying before about the you know intergenerational sort of right cross-generational interest i was going to ask um, you if your daughter as well if you don't mind uh, has your daughter said anything because my kids tell me things that they experienced stuff yeah, uh, um, some of my kids, yeah, uh, like one of my sons has said that he sees or has seen in the past white faces at the window um, and mm, a few tough. other little bits and pieces and also similar experiences to the ones you were saying, dude, about um, having experiences with characters, you know, with, with characters um, from television or, or things like that that might be, you know, this sort of, casting a glamour of, of right. screen memory kind of things. Um, I didn't really talk. I haven't talked until more recently with them about my experiences. I'd opened up to my wife a fair few years ago now, but not my kids. Never talked about it in front of them or anything like that. More recently in the past two years, I have because I've written this book and, and I'm more sort of openly talking in the house about it. And I'm doing interviews and whatnot like this. And Correct. the kids know that I'm doing them and they know what it's about and things like that. But they were having experiences in the days before I'd be exposing them to these kinds of ideas as well. Um, and um, yeah, so, so, so some of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm not too happy that my kids are starting to experience these things. I mean, they're older okay. now, but they've been experiencing it when they were young and they just opened up, let's say in the last year or so about their experiences, which haven't been the same as mine. Like, like I've had a mixture of just basic, instances but some traumatic stuff like shadow people and things right. they haven't had that which i'm kind of glad but i'm i still don't like the fact that they are experiencing that and i don't like the fact that your kids have to experience that as well but um let's get into the ct crypto terrestrials what, what where did that term come from um let, let's get into that please yeah yeah so mac tony's uh, coined that term crypto terrestrials uh, means hidden earthlings and um mac tony's rest in peace passed away as a very young peace. man 34 yep. years old in 2009 um but he'd been he'd been uh, formulating an, an idea a hypothesis that, that it was an alternative to the you know the, the dogmatic extraterrestrial hypothesis or eth that most people basically considered to be like the standard default position of if UFOs are real and if they are constructed and piloted by non-humans, therefore, you know, they are extraterrestrial but from somewhere else beyond the Earth, usually as well extrasolar, from somewhere else beyond even the solar system people normally consider it, that kind of thing. Um, that's, that, that's probably not as dogmatic as it used to be, but at the time people are much more prepared to consider, you know, the ideas of time travel or um, the multiverse and um, interdimensional possibilities behind the beings and that kind of stuff now. But 
even just in when Mac Tony's was um, thinking about this and and, and um, composing some of his ideas, he he it was quite dogmatic. It was like the, it was the mainstream opinion, and nothing right. else was really tolerated much. But he decided that in you know it's it's it's, it's this theme running through um, uh, close contact phenomena today that um, the beings, the non-humans, whatever they are, seem to be very interested in our genetics. Um, and McTonies was suggesting that this kind of interest suggests, imp- implies that they have some genetic affiliation with us, um, that they are compatible in some way with us genetically for them to be taking samples, for them to be and then also in certain um, interactions, actually having sex, having intercourse, copulating with us and things like that, uh, which suggests, you know, very, very, very close genetic relationship, so close that they are us or at least a sister race or something, um, and therefore indigenous to Earth. And so he said crypto-terrestrials, other races or, you know, singular or plural. He, it was a hypothesis to him. He didn't necessarily believe it but it was a thought experiment almost to McTonies, you know, um, floating this kind of idea as an alternative that explains, better explained, in his opinion, some of the evidence, some of the elements, particularly the genetic interest. Um, and he also, uh, the, a, a large part of McTonies' idea as well, this is where he kind of departs from Jacques Belay, who'd written, you know, that seminal piece, wonderful book, Passport to Magonia, and then he's written other books as well, of course, that are very much related to this kind of idea of, characters from folklore identified by him particularly you know celtic folklore gaelic folklore um that these beings represented in these older stories and older narratives and older interactions with non-human entities seem to have so many parallels with current ufo interactions uh, et you know ufo naught or ufo pilot interactions when the people get to see them um you know because Gaelic folklore about the fairies and things is about abductions, um, is about Nyan and Shi, the fairy lovers, interbreeding with mortals. Um, it's about beings that are magical, can convince you of states of reality that aren't real to manipulate your mind, cast glamouries. They live in the earth. Um, they are like a societal group of beings that live on our, the fringes of our world that can manipulate us, can also be violent and threatening sometimes sometimes can be can offer help. Um, if you graze your cattle too close to their underground dwellings, they can uh, kill cattle, kill livestock. Uh, so you see these parallels with like cattle mutilations of today, say, um, with the, associated with the ET phenomenon. Um, but Jacques Vallée suggested that the beings or entities that he was identifying that were responsible for this kind of continuum, this you know, from old times to today, the, the, the fairies in the past and now we'd call them aliens or ETs now, he was suggesting that they might be, or the evidence best suggests that they are somehow supernatural or um, metaphysical, superphysical in some way. The, the nuts and bolts understanding, flesh and bone understanding of them is inadequate or um, inappropriate. Um, Whereas Mactonies, what Mactonies did was take Jacques Vallée's ideas and said, hold on a second, if their technologies are advanced enough, surely they can hoodwink us. What if they are flesh and bone with nuts and bolts technologies and they're here and they're in the earth? 
under the seas in the mountains and they're genetically impoverished and they require us to heal themselves or make themselves whole again. And they have this kind of um, uh, clandestine presence um, and, you know, uh, perhaps a parasitic relationship or perhaps symbiotic if there's sort of mutual benefit involved. So Mactonis, that was really where Mactonis, with his crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, right. departs from Jacques Vallée's, which is, which is quite similar. Um, and Mactonis admit, admitted, you know, in his book, um, The Crypto-Terrestrials, A Meditation on Indigenous Humanoids and the Aliens Among Us. Uh, cool little book. Not, not, a, not a very dense book, but there's a lot of good info in there. Um, he, he admitted that he was building and standing on the shoulders of Jacques Vallée to, for the crypto-terrestrial idea, but then he brought it back to a sort of concrete reality. And so I, I felt that the beings that I interact with, that the term crypto-terrestrials from Tony's was appropriate. Um, you could argue that lots of different terms would work. Um, uh, and in the end, languages like words for these kinds of beings are just a convention. And as long as everyone agrees on to use a term and to move on, that's fair enough. And there's a lot of, you know... Um, debates and arguments as to whether you should call them crypto-terrestrials, extraterrestrials, ultra-terrestrials, or a whole host of other names. I've settled on crypto-terrestrial because I think in the end, it does stem from a concrete material kind of technology that is robust enough to make it so that they are, you know, can be invisible, can um, move through solid objects by becoming intangible can open portals and all these weird, wonderful, magical-seeming things, but nonetheless, they're achieving it as people that are genetically related to us very closely and are just as physical as we are. No more magical or spiritual or esoteric or anything than we are really in the end. You know, So, so they're like us, but they just have a heads up because they have better technology, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So to yeah, touch on yeah. to, to touch a little bit more on Mac Tony's because he's a very interesting character. And the reason why I say that is because when I was doing like research for this this uh interview and his name had come up, I had noticed that he was originally like a fictional writer dealing with like sci-fi and transhumanism. And that's what most of his books were. And then out of the blue, before he passes away, he comes out with this non-fiction book about these crypto terrestrials which you say he builds off of jack valet's um research do you know like is, is that the reason why he st did this one book before he passed away is 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 uh um he he to piggyback essentially he, he yeah i think he was he did write fiction and i think he had a book published that was a collection of short stories called something like fade, yes fade to black or something yeah um um, but he also was intensely interested in Mars and he wrote another book called, um, oh, it escapes me now, before the Crypto Terrestrials was released and before uh, Mac passed away, um, he actually wrote a book about the, um, you know, the, the features on Mars, on the Martian surface and the implications of that and what it might say about some ancient civilization that was there before and what we could learn from such a civilization were it to turn out that they they are some that these structures were built by some extinct civilization so he was dipping his toe into sort of um that kind of research alternative science research and things like that investigations and and philosophizing i suppose and speculating about 
um, these things. Um, and then he, he, he was well known, I think, for his blog, which still exists, but, um, it's still up online. And he formulated a lot of his ideas about cryptoterrestrials slowly over that, I think, and then decided he was going to write a book about it. Um, so, and he was, he, he was considered, I think he considered himself to be a futurist where he was speculating about the possible future of humanity and yeah, transhuman, humanism, post-humanism. Some of his blogs have been pub, some of his yeah, blog entries have been uh, edited and published as well as post-human blues, volumes one and two. So I've got them as well somewhere or other, but I haven't, I've never gotten to the end of them. Um, I, I have to get back and, and try to get some time to read them at some stage. But um, uh, yeah, and he wrote a lot of um, interesting kind of political commentary and things like that in his blogs as well. But um, he, he'll always be remembered for his crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, I think, in particular. Um, and uh, he's just uh, such an intelligent guy, you know. And I mean, you yeah. can listen to him still. Some of his um, interviews and things that he'd done on podcasts and radio and stuff like that about his Martian book, The Martian Apocalypse, I think that book was called, and then also his crypto-terrestrial stuff. Just such an eloquent speaker, such an intelligent guy. Um, if he'd gone on to, to you know, um, be lucky enough, fortunate enough to have had a longer life, he would have, uh, I'm sure, produced a lot of really interesting material and work. Um, but, uh, yeah, rest in peace. Yeah, he, he, uh, he was on Coast to Coast a few times. I thought if I remember correctly, right. but you had, you had made some comments about like these uh, creatures being somewhat parasitic and also copulating with humans. And um, that, that connects with like the Nephilim, you know, um, and archons. So those could be like other names that maybe these beings were given. Right. But do they have, yeah. a do they have a definitive name, Ryan? Like, do you, cause I know you've mentioned them. A specific name can you get into that like their name yeah yeah they said uh, yeah and, and the idea of you know in gnosticism the idea of the archons um as being the the servants of the demiurge and the manufacturers artisans of this reality and it's sort of like a prison planet and all that kind of stuff there's some aspects of that i think that are relevant to these beings i think uh, I'm, I'm quite boring when i say this and people are just like oh you're saying no. everything is these guys you know but i think that if not all then most supernatural characters and figures from our super from our superstitions and our mythology and our religions are in some way traceable back to them um and then as cultural interpretations of their real presence you know filtering into our beliefs and our thoughts and um yeah so but uh, they said to me that they're called the mudjana and i chose to spell that M-A-J-E-E-N-A. -E -E could have spelled it differently. It could, could have been M-A-J-I-N-A. I don't know. Just at the time, right. I thought, I'll just write it like that. And I've started writing it like that. And now I can't be bothered changing it. Sometimes I think maybe I should have spelled it with an I instead of a double E, but whatever. Um, but um, yeah, and and they've said that to me a few times. And I've sort of I've settled for that word. And I use that more often nowadays than I would call them anything else. Um, when I was writing my first book, um, even though they'd mentioned that name to me a few times, I didn't really use it in the first book, um, preferring that to call them, you know, just CTs, crypto-terrestrials, or Orions, uh, as in the constellation of Orion. Um, and in the book, I 
the investigations to try to demonstrate that they have this relationship with Orion's belt. Um, and so it's, and, and also, uh, P 52 Orion's. Yeah. Yeah. Also. Yeah. The, the, a designation that majestic has used for them in the past is P 52 Orion, which you is know what that means present plus 52,000 years, um, from now, which is because they're in the majestic believe them to be future humans, which they are in a way. Um, but it depends on what you mean by time travel. Um, because they're not really, it's not like a time stream and they're from our future. It's more like a Rick and Morty kind of interdimensional yeah. multi, multi-verse, multiverse, kind of right? Like a multiverse. Multiverse. So that, so, um, in order to, with their genetic impoverishments in order from too much genetic engineering and interfering with their own DNA over millennia as, uh, means that they have reproductive issues now, um, and they are unraveling and. They require our DNA to augment and bolster and, and, and return um, wholeness to, to them. So they've sidestepped into a, another timeline that is, for all intents and purposes, identical to the way theirs was, their ancient history, and, and moved into that. So hijacked, I mean, that's a sort of a fairly negative word, but an emotive word. It depends on how kind you want to be to them. But really, you could say that they've hijacked our reality because they see us as being ancient, healthy versions of themselves before, before the fall, in the sense of before they ruined their own genome. Um, and this is an ongoing problem, pathologies and maladies that they can't, that it, they can't permanently fix. So they require a, a generational, you know, in, uh, across transgenerational um access to our dna um with all of their new generations um but um yeah so and then people could suggest hold on a sec if you're saying they're crypt you're saying they're crypto terrestrials they're indigenous to earth but you're saying they're not from here because they're from another dimension uh that, that's a fair point they are from another version of earth originally albeit in their version of earth this gets quite complicated in their version of their timeline they eventually left earth and went to orion so that's why you could call them orions and that's why majestic has designated them orions but and um and also considers them to be future humans of a kind but you could just as easily argue that they are interdimensionals or or creatures of the multiverse which is what jacques valet at one stage had suggested they might be as well um but yeah. So do you feel like they left here because they essentially they fucked up. They left here to go to Orion because maybe there was something in Orion that, w- that they thought may have been able to help them. And they realized, OK, it's not we, we're not doing any anything better here in Orion. Let's go back to Earth. Is that how it works? Is that uh, how, that's what I it seems overall, like? I'm not quite sure whether their genetic problems. Whether they had their genetic problems as early as that as when as before they'd left their version of earth um they left earth to the moon and then to mars and then over thousands and thousands of years then ended up finding an earth-like planet orbiting on the lum in orion and went there and were there for tens of thousands of years so they're considered to be fifty-two thousand years ahead of us potentially um and then returned <clears throat> but i think that their genetic problems were developing <clears throat> slowly over a very long period of time um 
and that that originally left the version. <clears throat> excuse me, co-coughing. It's all right. Great minds think alike. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think they they left um, they they left Earth because uh, there were issues with Earth as well, where there'd been uh, solar activity in their version of Earth that had caused upheavals and a pole shift. And um, over thousands of years, they built up their technologies again because they'd been smacked down by the cataclysms to be, you know, pre-industrial kinds of people. And then they slowly over millennia built up technologies again and then left Earth. Um, uh, yeah, if people are interested in in looking more into that kind of things, there's a guy called Dan Burrish. Um, he hasn't been very popular in ufology for a long time, but people are taking more seriously his testimony. Again, he claimed to have uh, been a microbiologist employed at S4, where Bob Lazar claims to have, have worked on back engineering. Yeah. And, and, he, and he took um, hits. He took a lot of hits. He did, yeah, yes. Uh, and then was told not to talk anymore and didn't and hasn't really had that much to do hasn't, I think, for a very long time now um, done any, like, formal presentations or anything like that, maybe since, like, 2010 or something. Um, but still very much alive and well um, and uh, in the background there somewhere. But, um, yeah, the, um, Dan Burish, B-U-R-I-S-C-H. Um, yeah, if people are interested in, in looking him up, find out a lot of cool information. Uh, I definitely believe that guy. All the things that he says uh, um, compatible with the information I've been told by these guys, the beings themselves, um, and that and it all adds up. You know, like the, his cosmology, his his understandings of how many beings there are, their backstories, why they're here, and all this kind of stuff. The physical descriptions of the beings that he gives is identical to what the beings have told me um, about themselves. Uh, and so when I discovered Dan Burrish, I was like, uh, this dude's the real deal. Right. Um, right. But, you know, his paper trail doesn't make sense. But a lot of people involved in this kind of world that um, are coming out and making claims, often if you're do doing some kind of normal journalistic investigation into the truth of the matter, there's counterintelligence. Matters of national security are always going to have this kind of thing. But it, I think particularly when it comes to the UFO <laughs> question, um, you can't just keep it at that. You know, Bob Lazar had heaps of problems as well where I think Stanton Friedman in particular, the, the, the famous ufologist Stanton Friedman, really gave Bob Lazar a hard time. Yeah, he didn't like Bob him. Lazar's <laughs> uh, paper trail just did not make sense. You know, none of the institutions he claimed to have attended or workplaces and stuff said they, they knew him and all this kind of stuff. The same thing with Dan Burrish. Um, and uh, but you can't leave the investigation at that because that's really to be expected. If they're telling the truth, you could argue that if their paper trail makes too much sense, <laughs> you could you could flip it on its head. If they're right. if they're making all of these uh, grand claims, grandiose claims, and their paper trail makes a fair bit of sense there over their lives, you could say, "Oh, that's interesting. Why haven't powers that be done more to uh, muddy the waters there?" Um, now Charles Hall. And I know, dude, I'd love to hear about your experiences as well at, um, at Nallis because you said you were even at Creech. Yeah. Yes. Is that, uh, which is where, uh, which was in what, the, Charles Hawley's books is Indian Springs. Yeah, yep. at that time. But uh, the, he was like Dan. When I discovered Charles Hall, that was like when I discovered uh, Dan Burrish as well. I discovered him earlier 
than Dan, I discovered Dan Burrish, but I was like reading those books and I was like, this is definitely real. And these are the same beings that I have interactions with. So the beings that Charles Hall calls tall whites, um, and he coined that word. I'm pretty sure in ufology, I might be wrong. You might, there might be, um, you know, um, a precedent to that uh, where other uh, people were using the term tall white before him. You know, Adamski, George, did he say tall whites? I don't think he, he used did, that he term, though. He didn't say, I don't know if he specifically said tall, tall whites, but tall whites are always associated with Nordics. And I know Adamski. Yeah, yeah, Nordics. Nordics. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think um, before before Charles Hall, people would just call them Nordics. Right. But now tall whites, I'm pretty sure, post Charles Hall. So his books came out, his first one, two, I think, came out in 2002. Right. Um, That's how I know of tall whites through, through, um, Charles Hall. That's how I know. Charles Hall, yeah. Yes. Nowadays, sometimes people now make a distinction between tall whites and Nordics and say that names for two different races and things. I think that's an artificial distinction. I think, you know, like you listen to old school dudes like um, that have uh, sort of like been interested in ufology from before Charles Hall's days. And they're more likely to use the word Nordic and didn't, didn't seem to have tall white in their vocabulary. I think there are some instances of maybe people saying tall blondes and things like that. But, but anyway, getting sidetracked there. But the tall whites, what he called tall whites, um, you know, posted to Nallis uh, in the, for two years in the 60s as a weather observer, and he claimed to have in prolonged and regular interactions with tall, fair beings. Well, not all tall. Some of them are quite small, and that's an element of his testimony as well, which is true that these beings can take a very long time to grow and it can take a hundred years to even get to six foot tall. They have like windows of growth. And if they're um, fortunate enough to reach the uh, advanced ages of like six, 700 years and things like that, they can be immensely tall, eight, nine foot tall. Um, or even more, I think Charles Hall mentions one individual is 10 foot tall. Um, but uh, yeah, large blue eyes, frail build, um, uh, eat, living in the mountain ranges there, um, advanced technologies, luminous suits, uh, would uh, play tricks on him, would mess with his mind and use uh, mental manipulation, um, suppress memories that he would try to uh, do a bit of self-hypnosis with and try to, um, you know, uh, locate some of these, retrieve some of these lost memories and things like that. But uh, his books, Millennial Hospitality books, I recommend people, any, any viewers, your listeners, if they haven't, uh, read them yet i really recommend reading them um and that's that's definitely the real deal but but what would you say dude you having been posted to the same place yourself what do you think of charles hall's testimony do oh, you yeah um yeah well, okay so when i was there i wasn't aware that indian springs was uh the launching ground for uh uavs you know drones okay. and so um a lot of the drones that they were testing were uh, confused for UFOs sometimes. Okay, so okay. I worked at Nellis. I worked in what they call a weapon storage area in a, in a place called Area 2. Okay, it's called, it was called Area 2. And it's, it was uh, what people don't know is that uh, the Nellis testing range, which is Nellis Air Force Base, Area 51, S-4, Indian Spring, it's all connected. It's all one thing, okay? Um, and you you get jobs uh, f- through word of mouth, essentially, from what I understand, from what I heard, uh, to work at 
specific special areas. I worked with people that worked at Area 51. I just wasn't allowed to ask them questions about it. I did one time, and the response I got back wasn't a positive response back. It was essentially like, don't ever ask me that question again, you know? Um, so I worked at I worked as what they call a sentry, S-E-N-T-R-I, which is a guard. I was a guard initially when I started, and I worked at the weapon storage area, and we had nukes there. So, And that's, that's not like a secret now that we had nukes. And uh, and then from there, I had my first experience, like not even a couple of months in where uh, it was me and, and it wasn't by myself. It was me and three other airmen. We saw a series of lights in a triangular pattern and some sort of mass blocking out the stars because this was like in the evening and, and, and in the desert, it gets dark really, really quickly. So they did like some sort of like, I don't know how serious of an investigation they did, but they did an investigation they had all of us separated, tell our stories. We we wrote um a memo down or or uh what do you what would you call it? It's not a memo, but we wrote a you know a statement. We had a, we had to write a statement. After that, I don't know what happened. We were told it never happened. We were told it never happened, and I don't know what happened to our statements. We were told never uh -huh. to talk talk to each other about it. So me and the three other individuals, we weren't allowed to even discuss it. What was oh, weird man. about it is. <laughs> I would be working with these individuals in the coming months or years and never had the, the thought to want to bring it up to them out of fear. They never brought it up to me. There were instances where we could have talked about it and nobody would have ever known. We, we just never did, which is weird, you know? Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So from there, I went into the armory still at the weapon storage area. So I got essentially promoted, I guess, and I started working in the armory. We had instances there, uh, like shadow people, and I, and oh, I mean wow. people. I'm talking people, not one one shadow person, but a multitude yeah. of shadow people running around in the desert in the weapon storage area, which caused, oh, wow. yeah, it caused like major hoopla, like, and this was at nighttime, and that's documented. There's stories out there. If you look it up, you'll find that there's stories out there of people talking about this incident. So that's one. Um, there's other incidents of, you know, people seeing like like me and the three other individuals lights out there, um, seeing what could be a satellite moving, but then the satellite, quote unquote, stops and goes in a completely different direction, which satellites don't do. And that's, again, yeah. over over the Nellis testing range. So yeah. um, Indian Springs, where Indian Springs comes in every once in a while, they would have uh, security forces members, which I was, do other jobs. So. If a plane, let's say they were testing a plane and it crashed, they would send troops out there to guard the plane so that nobody goes out there and messes with 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 the with the plane or anything like that. Or if like Indian Springs was short manned and they didn't have anybody to watch the gates, the entry and exit of of of, of Indian Springs, they would pull security forces members from Nellis. So twice I had to do that. The first time I was with a partner. And nothing happened. But let me tell you, Indian Springs is a very weird place. Okay. Right. And what I mean is the you see cars in the parking lot, but you don't see people getting in them and leaving and coming in. Like the traffic okay. is so minimal. It's almost like a ghost town. And yeah. that's in all, all, all times of, of the day and night. Um, the highway that connects to Indian Springs, same thing, not a lot of traffic. Um, the drive 
from Nellis to Indian Springs, although it should seem short, for whatever reason, it's it's pretty long. I don't know if it's because because uh, I, I couldn't drive out there on my own and neither could my partner. Right. Mm-hmm. They would drive us out there. So I don't know if they took okay. a, a, a long, longer path so that we couldn't memorize the, the route there. Because oh, it, it right. just seemed like it was just too long. But anyway, uh-huh. the second the second time that I was there, um, I was supposed to be with a partner. Supposedly he had called in sick and they told me they, that they needed somebody out there. So they were like, bring a lunch with you. You're going to be in this gate shack, which is one of the, you know, the main gate shack for, for the main gate. And then we'll come and pick you up like around, you know, five, six o'clock p.m. So I started my shift probably like at seven in the morning. And then I was supposed to end my shift like around five. So it's around, you know, quarter till five o'clock, starting to get dark because, like I said, out in the desert, it gets dark pretty quickly. And uh, I call up to, to check to see if somebody is in route to pick me up. And they told me that they had to take care of something on the flight line. And that they were going to be late just to hang out. So I wound up hanging out. And then I, I got bored after a while. So I leave the gate shack and I walk. And it's not, the gate shack is not far from the main main road. But I walk out towards the main road just to get air. And for some reason, something tells me to look behind me. And because, you know, you have Indian Springs. It's in a valley, as you know. And then there's mountainsides, right, that, that, that connect to Indian Springs. And on the mountainside, I see this red orb like floating it shoots a laser into the side of the mountain that it and it melts the mountain to the point where you can see the 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 lava so to speak or the magma and 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 drippage then the the heat subsides and then this ball just disappears okay so then like maybe 20 30 minutes later i get picked up and on my drive home, I knew in my mind not to say a damn word to these these people <laughs> because I did it before and I was told it never happened. And I didn't want to draw, have that attention drawn on me again. So that's yeah, my story know. about Indian Springs. Yeah, wow. That's that's very, very cool. That's intriguing, dude. Wow. Shit. Yeah. I don't. Will you mind if I put a bit about that in my next book? Yeah. No, that's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, Cool, man. It's very intriguing, and the and the um shadow people link as well is 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 especially intriguing to me as well because. Well, um, have you have you heard of Catman? (laughs) No, what's that? It it sounds extremely stupid, but there's this sort of lore about this creature, this hybrid creature. Um, I got to send you, uh, cause I, I, I got interviewed by, uh, this individual named Tony Merkel. He has a podcast called the confessionals. Um, well, let me tell you first, I, the, the first time that I ever reached out to anybody, cause I don't really talk about this all the time. And I wasn't talking about this for many years. I just started talking about this, like maybe yeah, cool. two, three years ago, um, like in videos and, and, and in interviews, my first interviews with Robert Hastings. I don't know if you know who Robert Hastings is. No. Okay. So Robert Hastings is one of the first individuals to do research on military and the connections with UFOs. Okay. okay. Um, he also was one of the first individuals with a, a large group of people to, to, um, to go to Congress with this. And this happened like in the nineties. Okay. So you're talking about, 
you know, um, Stanton Friedman. It was him, Stanton Friedman, uh, Robert Salas. I don't know if you know who Robert Salas is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Robert Salas was the, the, he was, uh, he wasn't an officer. I don't believe. Um, I think he was like a high ranking, um, NCO in Maelstrom Air Force Base. And they had that incident where the, where the nukes got shut down by the UFO. Okay. Yeah. Okay? yeah. So he was involved in that. There's the Japanese uh, incident, the Japanese airline incident. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, the, yeah. the guy who 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 handled the radar went to this um, meeting okay, as well. Yeah. It was featured on Larry King. So anyway, Hastings is a is a is a big deal. He's not some run of the mill guy. Okay, and um, cool, yeah. he was on Coast to Coast, and I was listening to it. And he had asked at the end of the show if anybody that was in the military had experiences and they're willing to come out and talk about them. He was like, please email me. But the caveat is you have to send me a copy of your DD form 214 to show proof that you were in the military and that you were stationed at wherever you were stationed at. So that's yeah, how he would he would be able to weed out the, the, the people who were telling the truth, the people who were lying. So I reached yeah. out to him and we developed a, a friendship. So he wrote an article, say, in 2014 about my incident. And I could send that to you if you want. Oh yeah, um, that'd be wonderful, man. There's there's a that. lot of information that you can probably get out of that, but I'll send that to you. Jeez. And then, like I said, it, I didn't really talk about it too much, other than stay in contact with him until I did the interview with Tony Merkel, and then there I talk about this thing called Catman, which I found out was like this supposed uh, genetic hybrid program where they took supposedly DNA and they manipulated it. The DNA varies because if you listen to someone like emory smith he'll tell you that it's alien dna mixed with animal dna or some other dna like ours or whatever to create this hybrid whatever creature i was told that it was two different animal dna that were mixed together to create a weapon and that they were doing these experiments out near area 51 and that the creature had escaped Okay, so and again, sounds crazy, but uh, there's an individual named Chuck Zukowski. Okay, he had a show uh, that didn't last that long. Um, I think they forced him to shut down because he was getting kind of close. But in one of his shows, he goes out to to the Nellis area because he found out a story about some creature that's out in the desert. Okay. And I believe that that is what they call Catman. Now, other than myself and the person who told me the story about Catman, I haven't really heard about anybody talk about it until recently on a Sasquatch podcast. There was an individual who would not say where he worked at um, in the Las Vegas area. It wasn't Nellis. And I believe it was Indian Springs. But he said he wasn't allowed to talk about it. And he talked about Catman. Right. So, okay. So th- there's some crazy shit going on, Ryan. I'm just going to tell you straight up <laughs> yeah. now. There's some crazy fucking shit going on. And I ain't lying, God damn it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because I don't crazy. I don't know these people. I don't know any right, of them. Right. I, I didn't. These people are talking about how they served or how they worked years after I was out of Vegas. So I don't know who these people are. I have no connection to yeah. them other than the stories that they've told. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I didn't mean to go on a tangent. There. No, no, I apologize. No, that's, that's, <laughs> that's good but, stuff, man. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah. So so Nellis in general, but particularly Indian Springs is um is it like um other people um I think who was it? Hold on, I'm just I can't remember her name now. She's a journalist that's um 
oh, her name's escaping me. A, a famous journalist that um, is a ufologist. Um, she re- recently co-wrote a book with Jacques Vallée. Um, oh, anyway, doesn't matter. I think I know who you're uh, talking about. She's connected to uh, Philip Corso and um, yeah, I, I think yeah, I know I think, who you're talking um, about. Is anyway, that doesn't matter. But it, I know who you're talking about. Um, um, she um, organized when uh, Charles Hall's testimony was first out and he'd written his first couple of books and he was doing interviews and stuff like that. She interviewed him and um, she decided to hire a private investigator to go and find some of the people, some of the airmen that he alleged were there with him because his um, uh, um, FOIA requests, numerous people have tried to access his details and his and details about his, his enlistment, all that kind of stuff, and it draws a blank uh, when people are, are doing freedom of information requests. Um, and But she had... I just can't remember her name and it's really annoying me, um, set up a private investigator quite early on there in the early 2000s to go and find some of these guys. And he did. Um, and I, I write, I, I think um, Michael Sala, ufologist Michael Sala wrote up a report about it and I actually put it in the back of my book as one of, in the appendixes. But um, he found them. Unfortunately, he didn't give their names because of, uh, you know, their anonymity and whatnot. Um, they didn't necessarily directly want to be involved with this. But um, he discovered people who said, yeah, Charles Halls was there, which confirms, corroborates there a big part of his story because lots of people knocked down Charles Halls' story off the bat because, hey, he wasn't even enlisted at the time he said he was. Um, there's no record of him, blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, so they confirmed, I think there were three airmen that they tracked down that said, yeah, we knew Charlie Hall and, confirmed that and they confirmed things as well about um the place being an area of high strangeness you know um uh things being moved around as well when they're posted uh, um you know and, and having all of these interesting experiences and i think um they they also confirmed the idea of um ufos being very prevalent out there and and the general culture was to not talk about it um or you know uh you'll have this legacy following you or you uh you'll be you know, having to pay for it in some kind of way. Um, uh, your career, in way of your career and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, so that's very interesting that they, that that seems to support, corroborate, you know, that he was there, which is very unfortunate, you know, that um, the powers that be, whoever, if they've messed with his record, you know, to muddy the waters or whatever. Um, because so many people, that would find his book so compelling and so interesting, never even bother to get to the stage where they're going to consider the reality of it because officially he wasn't even there in the first place. You know? um, so that's, it's really sad, you know, but um, anyway, hopefully more people will discover Charles Hall as time goes on. Yeah. They, they, it's eventually, it's going to be inevitable. It's going to be inevitable. But um, also another thing I wanted to tell you too, is like when I first got to Nellis, okay. Um, one, I was a fan of the UFO subject before that, you know, watching UFO files and stuff on history channel. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, w- I went through, you know, my basic training and my tech school. And then usually after that, once you're done, they send you to your duty station, but something happened where it took them a while to find me a duty station. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were just haphazardly sending troops anywhere 
but they weren't um, considering that some of those troops had families and it was causing morale to go down and people weren't re-enlisting or they were telling other, you know, their friends, you know, don't enlist, they're going to send you here and there. So they had to find, I guess, a duty station for me to go to that I could bring my family because I already had a family in place. And uh, then I got Nellis and uh, I didn't realize I'm driving to Vegas where Area 51 is, we're near Roswell. Like that never occurred to me until after after my first incident there, you know? Okay. But but when I got there, you know, they show you around and, uh, you know, I I talk about like the area, you know, in the interview, I'm going to send you the interview I did. I go into detail about how the area looks because that that area is uh, no longer inhabited anymore. They they took the nukes out. They got rid of the guards and it's pretty much anybody can you can go there if you wanted to and drive right into area two, the weapon storage area. It's 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 been emptied out, but they still have the above ground silos where um, they had the nukes stored into. Right. And I remember uh, this tech sergeant taking me to one of these silos and the silos had like a metal door. All of them did that had these claw marks on it. Oh wow! These three fingered claw marks on it, and he he, like it was there before he got there, but it's it was part of the lore there. Like it was uh, like an attraction, I guess. You know, you show the people yeah. that you bring in, like the newbies. You know, the different uh, parts <laughs> of Nell of, of the weapon storage area. But I remember seeing that claw mark in the metal, like whatever this was, clawed wow. the metal. You know, All right. okay. and I know you talk about the technology of these creatures, but before you get into before we get into, I kind of wanted to ask you a question before I went on my tangent, which I apologize again. Um, the Magina or yeah. Magina, does that stand for something? Does it translate into anything? Yeah, I, well, it's related to now. I'm not quite sure if it was their name or the, their planet. That was orbiting Alnalum, or if it's the name for Alnalum star itself, was is Mana, Mana. They said now, and there's another race as well called Sebetjena, and they are from Sebet. But I'm not quite sure again if that's the name of a planet or a system. Um, and Majena or Man, I think Manjena with a bit of an N as well. I've been trying to get them trying to get a proper pronunciation and asking them if I'm doing it right and all that kind of stuff. And they say I am, but um, although that it's close enough, but um, <laughs> it's related to them being people of the place. Um, and yeah, so ma- there's Mana and Sepet. So Sepet, Yena are the small brown ones. Um, uh, the, the, the Virginia incident in Brazil is uh, an yes. example of them. Um, uh, they kind of look like greys, but they're dark brown with ridges, more prominent ridges on their skulls. Right. Um, and then they also have um, a suit, like their version of a boa suit, their version of these uh, cloaking suits and whatnot. But theirs has like a large head with ears the kind of, and, and sort of is furry. So they're not furry, but their suits are. And they look, they're like the, the Hopkinsville goblins, uh, the... the, the um, Kentucky, right? Kentucky goblins. The Kentucky, go- hey? yeah, um, is is typical of their appearance, and uh, you can find them in different cases in the literature and, and stuff, presenting themselves like that, but wearing these suits. Um, but what they look like under the suits is the the Virginia incident kinds of beings. They're they're from Sepet, Se- and the 
the Majina call them Sebetjina, but I don't know what they call themselves. That's just what, right. and they call them as well little brothers and they're allied, close allies with them, these two groups. So the ones that are like tall whites, Majina or Manjina and Sebetjina. Um, yeah. And so the Sebetjina, they, are they, they look different than the Majina? Yeah, they're the little brown ones, the Virginia okay. incident things. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Or, James, or when they're in their outfits, they right. look their helmets look like a vampire bat's head, kind wow. of. But that's a helmet. Yeah, uh, like think, the Kentucky Goblins. I think James Fox is is doing research on that. He's about to like, I guess, uh, release a documentary yeah. about the Virginia incident. If I'm not mistaken, um, that'll be cool to watch. Yeah, yeah. that yeah, because I mean, I heard that that incident again like before even joined the military they, they were they were talking about that incident but not in depth like they are now i think there's more information being released now but can you explain the term um free range archaic beings or free uh range ancient humans uh yeah the, well that's what we are to them uh and free range in the sense that um they're present they've been present for thousands of years throughout history as crypto terrestrials as hidden people in the earth um dipping into the pool of our genetics uh to to bolster their own genetics so in the sense so i sort of think of us as being free range because they usually don't interfere with us that much or our natural evolution or progress but um so as to not artificially corrupt us in any way really but can access our genes when they require to so in that sense we're like free range archaic humans in that we're archaic versions of them so that's that's sort of how they see us as archaic humans right so we're like uh easy pickings for them they, if they yeah yeah and, and sort of yeah and 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 kept in a sense you know like um and this is sort of you know i think a lot of people think of this as being sort of fairly condescending or a patronizing view that they have of us but and and one of the reasons perhaps why disclosure hasn't happened earlier than it has because um, the idea that they're not ETs really necessarily, but they're CTs and they're here and they have been here for thousands of years and they hoodwink us and manipulate our minds and um, can and do intrude in our reality, but on their own terms and are using us really. I mean, it's not it's not as uh, parasitic as all that. I, I suggest that, that it's more symbiotic. It's a two-way thing in the sense that, um, they are very concerned about our survival, and you could look at that as being a selfish thing, but they require us to be uncorrupted as we are and survive. Otherwise, they will perish, you know. Um, and I don't know how, how many generations without access to our DNA that they would end up um, dying out, but they do require us. Um, and... Um, and so, yeah, lots of people, they wouldn't be happy with the idea of that. In fact, a few different people that I've talked to that are, you know, find what I have to say compelling enough that they're prepared to entertain the idea that it's a possibility. They say, how do I unlearn that? You know, they say to me, I don't want to know. If that's what's happening, I don't really want to know. You know, and they thought they wanted to know. They say, you know, we want disclosure, we want disclosure. And I say, I present them all the information and evidence I have. And they're like, oh, no, let's, let's leave it undisclosed then shall we you know uh so yeah some people find it you know incredibly creepy uh and um 
manipulative and uh, have, take the real negative slant on it, which I, which is understandable. I myself just find it so incredibly intriguing. It's just, just I'm just so fascinated, and I'm just also right. so honoured to be a part of it and to be interacting with them and things like that. That's the the side I take. But then again, they may be telling me to feel that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Manipulate or whatever. Right. Yeah, you like this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you love it, dude. You yeah. Know? yeah. The, these are not the uh, drones you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, there it is. Yeah, there's uh some I guess I don't know if you can call it a correlation, but what we've been doing to ourselves for years, like our body modifications, you know, plastic surgery. And I don't know if you're a fan of sports, but like, you know, how athletes are now breaking down because they're taking these performance enhancing drugs and all this stuff, you know, I'm wondering if, if that's what they're warning us not to do, you know, that's what, that's what's bringing them, you know, because that's that all, all, all the things that we're doing now with this body modifications and all that, that's going to lead eventually to worse things. Right. You know, we, you know, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that's sort of, uh, sort of fairly superficial stuff for body modifications and stuff like that but when we start getting down into the dna and you know altering code and things like that which people are really wanting to get on board with these days and um um geneticists manipulating us and making us something different you know rather than just augmenting someone by giving them fake boobs or whatever actually you know messing with their dna so that the next generation have naturally larger boobs and things like this. Like as soon as you're really making these intricate changes and stuff like that, that is a bad thing from the perspective of the CTs because they're the kinds of lines they went down and they, the whole purpose of us to them is that we're not like that. But we're also being corrupted genetically and stuff because of all the waste products and all the plastics and stuff that are in the environment that are in our food and in the air and in the water and are messing with us. And, um, uh, yeah, so the, the health of the biosphere and the the um, the encouragement of biodiversity on the planet across the face of the planet, um, and uh, the util- utilization of um, green technologies and um, sustainable technologies and sustainable agricultural systems and all this kind of stuff that that have as little impact on the earth as possible um really need to be put in place and there and these beings are all for that kind of thing because in the end as well they need they need us to be healthy and healthy humans healthy earth is healthy human you know because um and i I liken it to the idea of you know like the metaphor of if you've got a plant and you want its leaves to be healthy just spraying a little bit of water on the surface of the leaves and keeping them shiny but not watering the roots is not going to help you know, you need to have shiny leaves or shiny people as the systemic holistic system of the earth is in place. You need to water the roots. You need a healthy earth. And then naturally, organically, um, humankind will be more healthy and we won't have all of these petrochemicals and whatnot and uh, plastics and um, in, invading our bodies and all this. Um, and also won't require genetic manipulation because we will naturally be much more inclined to live longer happier lives and be stronger and healthier and all that kind of stuff um if the biosphere is in good shape so i need to sort of start thinking in those sort of systemic ways about how to maintain our health by taking care of our planet 
which sounds like, you know, it's, it's very sort of new age, hippy dippy kind of stuff. Uh, and it is a little mm. bit embarrassing to espouse these kinds of things, but these are the ideas that they represent, that they do have right. about the future of the earth. And you can, and again, if people are, um, if people are suspicious of, of, of these races of beings and consider them to be manipulative or, and of being hoodwinking us for so long that they're not trustworthy and things like that, I think in the end, if they are for the health of our planet and the health of us, that sounds fair enough to me, you know, like, right. yeah, you uh, can't blame them. <laughs> no, if, and if they have an alternative agenda that they're not revealing to us or something like that, well, um, I'm not sure what that would be, but what they are suggesting and espousing, espousing sounds, you know, fairly positive to me and I, I'm on board with it, you know. Awesome, man. So, so let's get into their technology because, uh, you had talked about suits. Um, right. Yeah. Like, so tell me what, what, what's their technology? What, what do they have? What do they contain? Yeah. I got, so you're going to have video to this, aren't you? Yes. Oh, if I hold this up, yeah, I'll just hold up my book anyway. So the, the cover of my book has what I call a Boas suit on it. And how do you um, spell that? I spell it B-O-A-S. And I got the word from the Antonio Villas Boas case from Brazil. Um, so and he in 1957 was working on a tractor at night working on a farm working at night to escape the heat of the day saw a red craft he thought it was a star approaching landed dudes got out of it in dark suits um they're fairly short they were five foot tall um so fairly short tall whites but uh nonetheless you know as charles hall talked about in his books and i've talked about a fair bit before they take a very long time to grow so if these mudjina are five foot tall they're probably going to be something like 50 to 60 years old or something like that. So they're still mature in, in certain ways, you know, um, with the capacity to live 10 times that age if they're lucky or whatever, but and at the beginning of their lives, but still, you know, not, not kids. Um, they were wearing these dark suits and they are a version I've identified of the same kind of suits that I have seen a few little differences here and there. I call it, think of them as being like a version of the same suit that, um, you know, Chris Bledsoe has talked about. Charles Hall himself talks about in his fifth book. Um, and I talk in my book about how Charles Hall saw these suits, but he presumed them to be a different kind of alien wearing them. But I argue, um, I have lots of reasons to feel and, uh, and argue and suggest that in his fifth book called The Greys, where he talks about how he saw tall greys. Um, he was seeing tall whites, but wearing these different suits, the military-grade suits, can cloak, levitate, super soldier suits, increase their, their strength, stamina, stamina um, and they can become intangible. Um, these are the shadow people when they're cloaking. Um, that's, a, a, in my opinion, if not all beings witnessed that are considered shadow people, are them at least most, most especially if it's if you have shadow people in your house, especially if it's in tandem with UFO activity where you've seen UFOs and things like that. It's them. It's definitely them. Um, so sometimes they still cast shadows when they're cloaking, or sometimes they'll appear as a sort of dark, nebulous figure. They can pass through walls and whatnot. But um, glowing red eyes at night, these uh, like a dull glow, like dull red coals when you see them. They have a long like nose appendage that flares out that's for um 
uh, reverberating, you know, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Amplifying sounds um, and uh, a mouthpiece as well to keep out, to filter the air, like a, a, a filter, a, a breathing apparatus, but to filter the air because they have they're susceptible to allergies and whatnot. Uh, and bacteria getting in their lungs and things that have weaker immune systems to us than us. Um, but uh, now these, and then also prosthetic claws that they wear on their hands, uh, which they use for self-defense usually. Um, How long are these claws? It's, it's, not, unco know? it's not uncommon, oh, a couple of inches. It's not uncommon for dogs, if they are in the vicinity, for dogs to, you know, either disappear or be found with their throats slashed. Um, even John Keel talked about the parallel between um, UFO flaps and dogs being found with their throats slit. Um, this is them. Uh, even Chris Bledsoe had one of his dog's throats slit, um, but then it was healed. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're not, they're not fans of dogs. And I think, I think it's... Uh, well, if they're injured, they... Uh, they they're stuffed as well. Like they take a long time to heal. If they're, right. they're, they're much more easily um, can be killed, can succumb to disease, and also they take a long time to heal. Um, but do, but do you think they, it's because? Do you think it's because the dogs sense that? Like the dogs have a sense for them? Is yeah, that, that as well. Is? I think that's as well. I think yeah, for sure. I think yeah, they're just like dogs have preternatural senses compared to us, and when they prefer not to be noticed, ah. and they're and they're and they're doing a good job of. Um, you know, being clandestine for Homo sapiens, the pesky dog in the yard will be barking and things like that. Yeah, gotcha. um, and there's sort of there's contradictions as well in the way they see the world. And I understand if people think, you know, they're callous enough to be killing dogs, but at the same time they're vegans, plant-based diets. They refuse to wear clothes that are made out of animal products. Um, has to be synthetic or plant-based material, um, and they're against animal agriculture and things like that um farming cattle farming ranching and things like that they're against that kind of industry um and economy um but at the same time they can be vicious enough to kill animals and uh, i think it comes down to they don't have a sense of humor especially about their children being in danger charles hall talks a fair bit about this in his books um but um they can and do harm pets um, but anyway, yeah, the claws, so they've got claws on their hands or not theirs, the, um, you know, prosthetic claws. Um, so these suits are called boa suits because of the Villas Boas case. Um, Kelly Kale saw suits like this in, um, uh, South Belgrave when she was abducted in Australia in 1992. Um, Belgrave was where I had that experience in the tent as well, where, um, it's the same part of the world, uh, or I had that experience when I was 20 and the, they were running around the tent and stuff. Um, and Chris Bledsoe's seen um, them with the glowing red eyes and his son uh, in the Fayetteville incident in 2007 in um, North Carolina. Um, and they saw them galloping on all fours as well, which is another thing Charles Hall talks about. Another thing I've seen them doing, especially when I was a kid, I saw the little ones galloping on all fours, they have longer arms compared to their bodies than ours, and they gallop. It's more natural for them to move quadrupedally as well as bipedally, um, and uh, so that's a, that's a if you go if you see a mudjana in the world, they're more likely to be dressed in a boa suit than without. 
you know, this is how they move about um, covertly in our world. Um, and some of their other technologies. Um, oh, did you, do you have any questions about that, dude? Before I yeah, move on yeah, because, I mean, you, you, um, you said that they cloak and then they have, like, the, the, this, this claw thing. And I, I know that in another interview you had mentioned very similar to the Predator, and it's, it is very similar to the Predator, that they have this mask um, that comes off and the, they, they can cloak and they also have claws. The Predator, you know, even the, the new movie, Prey, the the new Predator, you see the claws. Oh, yeah. It's a cool movie. I like the new. Predator. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a dope movie. They 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 got it back to where it was before because they kind of yeah. went away from the original Predator. But um, Villa Boas, where where was he from? Um, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head. South what America. Brazil, yeah, 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 Brazil. Yeah, he's from Brazil. Okay. Yeah, South America. Yeah, yeah, but I can't remember where in South America. Right. Yeah, if so you, Portuguese. A, right. So if you get a chance, um, if you go on my YouTube, uh, check out the episode number nine with this okay. individual named Chaz of the Chaz of the Dead. Because okay. uh he's he's a paranormal investigator. He found out about this group tall white in South America huh. called the Friendship, and he actually okay. went out to South America to do uh work and to investigate and he found some interesting things so if you get a chance oh, listen cool. to that and contact him if you feel you know you, you want to get yeah, some yeah, cool. answers um Wait. there's an, there's another individual too i don't know if you're aware of him um he has a site named ufos over vegas his name is steve barone have you heard of him oh uh, yeah yeah i think um i'm not subscribed to him at the moment but i have been in the past because I started up a new YouTube account. I haven't gotten around to subscribing to everyone I used to be. But yeah, yeah, he does some yeah. pretty impressive footage yes. filming, doesn't he? Yeah. I contacted him because of one of his pieces of footage that reminded me of the incident that I had. And uh, okay, I reached cool. out to him and we have a friendship. But he believes that those crafts that he's seeing are the tall whites that Charles Hall talks about. Right, right, yeah. You know, so yeah. they're, they they're probably are. Yeah. yeah, and those are some connections that that can be made. But um, yeah, very cool. So, what are some of like the scenarios where, because you say that they 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 they're very advanced technologically, so they could be shadow people, they could be fairies, they could be Sasquatch, they could be a lot of the things that people think that they see. What other experiences that you've heard of? from other people that you are like, okay, that's not a Bigfoot that you're talking to me about, or that, or maybe that you've heard somebody talk about, like, that's not Bigfoot, like the Patterson Gimlin film, or let's say, for instance, what other scenarios like that, where you know, like, oh, that's the Magina? Yeah, I'll, well, the the Sierra Sounds is one that I talk about a fair bit. That's definitely the Magina language, and, wow. and switch code switching like that, where you have it, because their natural language to our ears like our Western ears sounds kind of Japanese or Korean. Yes. Um, and sometimes the samurai, sometimes the Sierra sounds are called samurai chatter as well. They're known as that. Um, so Al Berry and Ron Moorhead that recorded those sounds in the Sierra Nevada mountains, California in the seventies. And they all almost always they're associated with Bigfoot. So people either say they're a hoax or if they're real, then they're evidence for Sasquatch. But, I've heard them making these sounds, all different kinds of sounds, definitely them. Um, and you can find 
you know, Charles Hall as well talks about animal-like sounds that the tall whites made when he heard them. Uh, he interpreted that as being their, their true general natural language, so chirping and whistling and growling and barking and uh, whinnying like horses, neighing, um, sounding particularly like meadow larks. He, he described them as sounding but also growling and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, that is what I call camocant, which is like cryptolex, which is them mimicking wildlife sounds as camouflage language uh, to confuse us, basically, if, if we're in the vicinity. Contrived linguistic systems, they're based on animal noises. When you actually hear them speaking in their own language, it sounds much more like our Homo sapiens languages, but it kind of sounds Japanese or something. Um, so the Sierra sounds, um, if, you, if your viewers are familiar with them, if they're, if they're not, they're, I really recommend you can find versions of it on YouTube. I think um, re the recordings done by Ron Moorhead um, and Alberic. Um, but uh, very like deep resonant sounds like an anime you know, samurai or something like that, that really sort of ultra masculine sound that when people are speaking Japanese in a really sort of deep way like a samurai. Um, but also code switching to more animalistic sounds, so hooting and roaring and um, twittering and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's one in particular. And I, I got in contact with Ron Moorhead about that as well. Like, um, um, what was so his I response? found out about the Sierra sounds. Uh, well, he, he's, I was very, being very annoying and he's, he's such a nice guy that, um, <laughs> you know, he, he was very, very gracious and he responded to me and he said, when I said to him, Hey, um, I'm very, very sure that, that this is not Sasquatch, that this is Mudjina, this is tall whites. And I sent him some information. I particularly sent him information about the, the Soria, Soria abductions in Spain, uh, where a guy was um, in 1978, was taken on board a craft piloted by tall beings with huge blue eyes that had long faces, long pointed chins. And that particular individual, uh, Julio Fernandez, gave where he's actually, in 1978, uh, giving a, a, an excellent description. He said um, that the um, – are you still there, dude? Yep. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. You, you, you froze, you froze, for, like, you froze um, for like 10 seconds. I, okay. Okay, yeah. I think maybe someone's using the microwave inside. It's, <laughs> it's near the uh, Wi-Fi router. So. Yeah. It's I right, usually put worry. a piece of paper over it saying no microwave for now. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So, I, so yeah, Ron Moorhead. So I got in contact with him and yeah, and I said to him, you know, this is the, the, the deal. What do you reckon? And he said, well, he had experienced elements of, I'm paraphrasing in here. He didn't say exactly this, this but he was, he was saying he experienced high technologies, evidence of high technologies as well. So they'd be hearing what they thought was Bigfoot. They'd look and they couldn't see them. So there's the sounds coming, but it's like they're invisible. Um, but also UFOs and orbs. So this is in conjunction with these kinds of things. Um, and, and one time he said he saw a um, what he described when he went back to the place is looking like a, um, a blade of a lightsaber without the handle, just the light, like it's scanning a few feet above the ground. 
and also the sounds of hum, like a hum um, coming from in the mountain, uh, which is an element that's often repeated in cases uh, in other Torwite or Mudjina cases I've identified, where the their facilities in the earth, you can hear them make humming and things like that. So I'd say that right there where they were recording those sounds as an underground dwelling or habitation of the Mudjina CTs. Um, and he said, well, you know, he, he finds that an interesting idea and maybe I'm right. That's all he said. He, because he said all he knows about them is they definitely had big feet because um, there were a couple of prints. Um, but the thing is, is that Mudjina have dirty big feet as well, especially the older ones, you know. Um, and he was saying as well that there'd be poltergeist activity. It would sound like their camp was being ripped up because they because the guys, Ron Moorhead and crew, would be hanging out in a little cubby like a like a like a fort they'd made with um heavy logs and branches inside an existing tree i think a hollowed out tree they they build this and feel safer in there and be recording while they're hiding in there at night while all of these sounds are being made out in the forests and they think they were hearing their camp around their fire just being ripped to pieces and stuff being thrown all over the place and in the morning there'd be nothing changed um is a very interesting uh, effect as well so kind of like poltergeist activity without any residual effect um but yeah so ron moorhead like i said he's, he's a wonderful bloke and he was very gracious and i presented that to him and he said well you might be right you know because of what sasquatch doing with um advanced technologies like ufos and stuff like that as well and that he didn't actually see what was making the sounds anyway um but you see that's if they're wearing these boa suits you wouldn't see them anyway sometimes you can sort of see a bit of a shimmer but more usually than that they're completely completely invisible you wouldn't even know they were there except perhaps still casting shadows occasionally and things like that but uh yeah so the sierra sounds is one for sure um, and anything else any other any other uh anything any other stories head, out uh, there that you're like yeah that's that's magina um i'm just thinking um like chupacabra like maybe chupacabra stuff um I'm not that familiar. I'll know I know that the 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 um the Utes and their skinwalker skinwalkers, yeah. Skinwalkers. Yeah. I think skinwalkers are them. Yeah. Um the idea that they can mimic like people talk about in the mythology, they can mimic other animals, they can present themselves as animals, uh, moving about on all fours and um uh and also um yeah, like and particular in Skinwalker Ranch as well, like that case of Skinwalker Ranch, in my opinion, Skinwalker Ranch is right there near an underground habitation, much in a tall white habitation, you know. Um, and they even reported, you know, in the in the in the Skinwalker Ranch case, they even reported the 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 ranchers ranching family that were there before National Institute of Discovery Science and Bob Bigelow bought the property and whatnot. But when the, the original the family that was there that it all sort of started from. Um, they would see the RV-like craft that Charles Hall describes being present at, at Indian Springs when he was there, that he'd see these uh, white, look like buses without wheels or like a recreational vehicle levitating and moving at high speed across the desert and over the mountains. Like and the Tic Tacs? Yeah, like Tic Tacs. Yeah, I suppose nowadays people would probably yeah be more familiar, familiar with the idea of the Tic Tac and uh, Charles Hall called them RVs, but in the Skinwalker Ranch case, they 
that family call them RVs as well. well. There's RVs parked on their property and they'd go to chase them and they'd move away. They couldn't, you know, they'd chase them again and then they'd lift up and go over the top of hedges and over the top of fences. Um, and that these RVs were piloted by giant men in dark clothing and dark uniforms um, that would leave huge footprints. Um, so this is them again, the Mudjina, and this is one kind of craft that they, they have. Um, and yeah, I probably the Tic Tac phenomenon is involved with that as well, that these RV craft may well be the Tic Tacs um, that have been wow, in the media. Wow, that's like, crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that's the thing, like the, that kind of high strangeness and paranormal activity, like people say, what's the deal there? Like the people at Skinwalker Ranch, you know, Skinwalker Ranch has got UFOs and orbs and poltergeist activity and trickster elements and um, cloaking beings like the predator and uh, um, cryptids. Also, and, and big, big, huge people piloting these, these craft and all this kind of stuff. I, and it seems to me like it was psychological warfare being launched on that particular family to move them on. The, so the, you, the, 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 yeah. Sorry. So you think that the, the, the series that's going on right now, these people that are doing the investigations, you think that the Majina are like doing these things to them to get them the hell out of there? Um, I, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that I don't watch that show. <laughs> I, I haven't watched any of the episodes. I know the show you mean that there's a there's an ongoing investigation and they're making right. a, a series out of it, Skinwalker Ranch. Um, my knowledge of Skinwalker Ranch sort of begins and ends with um, Hunt for the Skinwalker uh, by Colm Callagher and George Knapp and the Corbell documentary that was based on that right. book. Um, but the newer stuff, and, and so I'm familiar with NIDS, the scientists at NIDS led by Colm Callagher, financed by Bobby Glow and financed in part, we find out now by um, the Department of Defense apparently as well, um, but uh, which they've revealed in their more recent book, um, Skinwalker at the Pentagon. But um, yeah, the, the, I'm familiar with that. So the, the, the occurrences of that original family and then Colm Callagher and co um, launching investigations and, um, but not with the new stuff. So I can't really answer what would be happening there. I know with the NIDS group that the paranormal activity sort of ran dry. Like the scientists, like the, the family itself that have been there have been experiencing massive amounts of paranormal activity and cattle mutilations and tricks being played on them and um, their bulls disappearing and then being found in a corral all packed in like sardines right. and like just, just messing with them, you know, taking, taking you know, you're digging a hole, you turn away and you turn back again and your shovel's gone and you find it the next day on the top of the tree. And these weird experiences, you know, that the, the family was having, was having and the craft, all different kinds and all that kind of stuff. But then when Colm Callagher got there with his group, um, it all sort of dried up and they were there for a long time but didn't really have anywhere. So they had some interesting things happen to them, that's for sure, but nowhere near the, the level, almost like the Majina decided well if you are interacting with scientists too much you're encouraging them whereas if you want to if you want to dispel expel a family from a house you scare them and send them away but scientists want you to be providing them with um data so then to not provide them with as much and then that's right. how you make them go away that was what i was sort of thinking maybe right. tentative hypothesis but yeah. in this new series if you could tell me dude 
Um, so you've got all these people at Skinwalker Ranch trying to work out what's going on and wanting to experience UFOs and presumably and high strangeness. And um, are they actually finding a lot of that happening or is it sort of... Okay. Yeah, what, what's happening is that... Um, okay, so you had uh, Bob Bigelow, he sold to this guy named Brandon Fugel, right, um, okay, yeah. who's a multimillionaire. And so he has a research team there. And I guess they were having things going on, but they weren't able to to quantify or get to the point of what all these things were happening. So now they have this science uh, doctor. I, I don't know if he's a doctor, but he's a tailor, something Taylor. Anyway, he shows up and there's things that are happening. But it, 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 you're telling me the stuff about the Majina and it's like now it's starting to make sense to me now, um, especially considering the things that are happening to them. For instance, they've had incidents where they've had cattle die um they've had a video where they can't tell what's attacking the cattle but they have video of cattle being attacked and having marks on them like something with claws scratched it whenever they do digging something happens to an individual so Uh, one of the shows a big no-no isn't it the digging there that was in right uh, the book as well no digging the the digging is the biggest part so they start digging and then one of the individuals his head uh the skin on his head started to separate from his skull so he he went to the hospital and they have had x-rays of that and then the the scientist they that they brought in taylor he got hit with like some sort of like uh radiation he had like marks on his face and on his hand so anytime you dig something happens so then they did like ground penetrating uh uh like scanners and they believe there might be a craft underneath they think it's a craft but from what you're telling me it might be a facility that's underneath you know so they're right now they're at the point where they're getting close to finding out what it is because they found this pocket of rocks and if you were to move remove the rocks you could find a a, a hole or into a cave system they're trying to get into yeah. that cave system and oh, there's right, something yeah. and and it might it might be to their detriment if they wind up doing that but yeah, yeah everything that you've been be. talking about is crazy it matches with what they've been going through and that they're seeing craft too you know just things like tic-tac sort of crafts just will pop up yeah. when, when they're doing experiments and disappear, you know, right, they, dro- right, yeah. they, they drop like these, so these, uh, I may be explaining it wrong, but they try to drop these, uh, this, these detectors off of a helicopter to see if it can scan what's in the air. Cause there's a certain area where technology malfunctions. If you send up a rocket, it'll veer off. And they, they, there's a certain area there that they're trying to figure out, like, why, why is it disrupting signals? And, okay. um, and yeah, it's, I don't even know how to, you have to watch right. it if you, if you're yeah, interested. Yeah. I will, I will have to have a look then. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I remember in, like, in the column color, her George Knapp book, uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker, they're talking about how the family would see craft flying straight into the mesa, into the side, boom. Um, like, like they'd become intangible or something and just fly straight right. in and things like that. I think, yeah, there's, there's something there subterranean, but um, they're, 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 they are really playing with their lives doing that kind of stuff. In my opinion, um, some people, if they try to break into some kind of cave system, 
uh, that's not going to be good. I don't think There's, the the Mudgeoner as well. What they do is they'll make your life hell and haunt you um, as well, and uh, give you bad dreams uh, and uh, give you bad associations with places and things like that. Hopefully, they're steered away from offending the Mudgeoner. Like hopefully the Mudgeoner are delicate enough with them so that they can steer them away by manipulating them in their sleep or whatever or suggestion and stuff like that to turn them away from really playing with that kind of stuff because um because yeah they can be lethal they can be homicidal they've, i think they've killed a lot of people over the years you know uh, in my opinion especially like the hunters in missing 411 kind of you know david politis you know does different categories of different people different sorts of people going missing um you know, sometimes, you know, like children or professionals, or, you know, like doctors or academics or athletes or different kinds of people that go missing in national and state parks and wilderness areas and stuff like that. But he focuses on, at least in one documentary and in one of his books, hunters and right. hunters that are armed entering into wilderness areas where there's mudgeoner habitations and children with um, aggressive and malicious intent, even if it's they're shooting at animals or whatever that's people taking life lives their lives in a you know like that's really dangerous stuff and i'm and i think these guys by the sound of it at skinwalker ranch are putting their lives at risk um it depends on you know the, the thing is i'm surprised the mudgeoner if it is them and i'm pretty convinced it is why they haven't left the area and while people are interested in it just abandoned it for the time being um, why they still bother giving them paranormal activity, almost like it's encouraging in some way. But, uh, yeah, so that'll be interesting, dude. I'll have to have a little bit of a peek at that series then because I have to admit that I've just, just, yeah. just skipped that yeah. one. Because no, I was I sort of just... thinking maybe it's sort of a bit infotainment and it looks like right. it's a bit silly. I've seen some ads and stuff. It, it is. Like, uh, a a yeah. lot of these shows are. Um, I mean, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but, uh, you know, there's a show called UFO Witness, for instance, that's run by an individual named Ben Hansen. And he interviewed someone that I know about their experiences and then took that information and perverted it and switched it. So right. for, for entertainment purposes. So right. there are elements in the show Skinwalker that are ent entertainment based that, you know, is bullshit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, you, they are getting close to something. I don't know how it, it's going to affect them. You would know better than me if what they're doing is really bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, what they should do, really. And, you know, like I've heard Colin Callagher being interviewed on numerous occasions talking about how he doesn't want to communicate with the phenomenon. He doesn't want to communicate with it. He wants to study it. And he also said, you know, as a, which is a scientific process, you know, you don't want to inject yourself into the into the, the the subject you want to stay at a distance you want to be as objective as possible um uh, but the problem with this is they are people and they respond much more well to polite social interaction you know just for instance you know there's ghost hunters online that um, that have much more paranormal interaction with the mudgener than the nids than colin Callagher ever has i'm sure not because they don't approach them as cold scientists, which can be offensive to the mudgeoner, you know, 
not approaching them as though they're other people, but just being callous and trying to break into their cavern, cavern systems, for example, right. or whatever, without even asking permission, without even setting up any kind of attempt to, for interaction of some kind, without sitting around and projecting thoughts out and saying, right. would it be okay if we go here or go there and all that kind of stuff? Colin Callagher says, oh, no, 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 we don't want to interact with them. He also said, oh, you want to be careful interacting with things because you because you might attract their attention and then they might be negative entities or something like that. And it's like, well, you're going to get their attention if you're messing with their world. You know, if you're if you're there at their doorstep with just sticking things in the ground and making a nuisance of yourself, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, like a, there's a channel I always recommend. I don't know if you've heard of dude, but Twin Paranormal, a group of dudes in, in Nevada that have, not quite sure where they're actually based, but they go around. They travel around the US in general, I think, but most of the stuff's in Nevada and they um, twin paranormal on YouTube. And in my opinion, most of their interactions are with Mudgeon, um, even though they themselves interpret it as being ghosts or demons or skinwalkers or whatever, you know. Um, uh, and yeah, how they approach situations and how they get good responses is they basically introduce themselves. They talk about how they don't want to offend and they're not here to hurt anyone and they just want to have a chat. I mean, and that's the way to go, as you would with anyone, you know. Right. Um, so th these dudes, they'd find out huge amounts of, well, probably, I, I suggest they'd find out a lot more information if they actually approached the phenomenon and started trying to interact with it and engage it on a personal level. Um, but I suppose they're not, understanding necessarily that it has a personality that would you know respond to that but if they did if they gave that a go i think they'd, they'd have a lot a lot more um you know data come out of this of the interaction and they certainly wouldn't have you know physical side effects and right. all this kind of stuff or it looks like they're really being injured in some ways they're being warned you know yes to me i think that's what it is it's a warning yeah morning i have a couple of more things before i let you go ryan because i know you have things to do um right. one of the things that i wanted to talk to you about um okay so you know like i said i was into the ufo topic since i was young you know but when i saw whitley strebler's uh the cover to whitley strebler's book communion and i saw that alien it really didn't sit right with me for some reason and then years later, I found out that Alistair Crowley was in contact with some being called Lamb, and he drew a picture of it. And that as well really didn't sit well with me when I saw that picture. I felt like a familiar connection to that. Yeah. And then um, there was this thing called the Alien Race Book. And a bunch of pictures in there of these different alien races. But you, on one of your episodes, I think, uh, OR number 71, brought to, to our attention these pictures of these beings that look familiar to me and that, that it doesn't sit well with me um is that what right. they look like yeah the the, the photo the photos that i've got that i've put on my channel and i'm going to talk about them uh, in my in the book i'm writing at the moment um uh that's definitely imagina those three shots there's a there's three photos i came across one online and thought holy moly um, I couldn't quite see the color of the eyes because the, it was sort of uh, the color was dulled off. Right. I um, saw those pictures in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands. Oh, really? Did you? Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I yeah I, I came across them maybe a year ago or something like that. Um, oh, that's really interesting. They they've been um, around. 
they had okay yeah they that's them you know like and i've been sketching them drawing them this has been what i've been seeing for, for for years um and to actually see them like that photos of them now am i 100 percent sure it's them well i'm as close as you can get to that um if they, if it turns out they're mannequins down the road at someone you know and someone can prove they're not real what would blow that would blow me away because i'd be incredibly surprised but then i'd be thinking whoever manufactured these mannequins or this this fake has seen them because they're right. perfect right um so yeah and the length of the neck as they get older the kind of look they get really like quite uh, long necks right and uh the shape of the face um that's tall whites but as a tall, yeah so i saw i came across one of them and then so i did that google reverse image thing where you can search for other um uh, the the photos in other areas online um and i found the three then where what looks like to me two females and a male um and yeah that's that's them that's and then also i messed with the color because i was like now they're going to have blue eyes but i can't really quite see and so i brought the color out in general i brought the color up and then you can see that they do have blue eyes or so two of them right. you can see they got blue eyes and the other one you can't really still see what the right. color was but um yeah for sure that's them and the and and i think the like the alistair crowley one the lamb or lum uh, yes. the entity he claimed to have, have summoned or interacted with or dropped in on him when he was doing a a, a working or something that to me looks more like what we're called what are called p24s a different kind of future human race which is like the like the um skinny bob et kind of thing yes i don't That's again i don't one. know if, <laughs> yeah again i don't know if skinny bob's real or it's a fake but again i would suggest if it's a fake someone's seen a certain has done a very good job of recreating what one of the races actually looks like um and lamb sort of strikes me more as looking like one of them and less like a tall white you know um and i think i believe crowley said that being was quite small anyway but um but uh you know the 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 esotericist rudolf steiner uh, educator and esotericist um that invented the anthroposophy religion and stuff he um made sculptures and drawings and things of beings as well that strike me as being mudjana that look like elderly mudjana the older ones that have really long because as they get right. quite tall they get elongated faces with right their chins. features draw out more yeah yeah and and also the hands like he's done a sculpture of um what he calls an aromanic being and it has the four the fingers all spread out split out um and i think i mean it might be a coincidence but to me they look like he's seen this what i've seen you know that he may have been a marginal experiencer himself and he again was sort of like crowley like a um you know an es esotericist um occultist you know um but uh yeah um in your research how you know and this is including the the, the Majina and the and their brothers so to speak how many races are here or have visited here are there are there more than just them two because so yeah, far well, you've I, four of them so far yeah four well as far as i understand there's four um and they're all in the same way that kind of interdimensional human or future human depending on how you want to interpret it um now i do understand that ufology is full of 
well, it's full of a lot of things, but it's full of uh, a lot of uh, different kinds Bullshit. of races and people. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think mo- most of it is in my personal opinion, but um, most of the sort of folklore, UFO folklore online is, is a, a bit of bull. But um, yeah, the, I think, you know, like the idea of there being true aliens with, that are, with an evolutionary history beyond Earth that are coming here with advanced craft and visiting us and things like that. And maybe that kind of thing's going on, but uh, it's these these four races are the most important, and they're the ones that have been abducting us and interacting with us, and that people think of when people think of close encounter events, they're thinking of these dudes, this particular four, really. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't like to say, of course, that there's no such thing as advanced, sophisticated beings other than that visiting us. Um, who am I to say that? But but uh, these are the main ones um and they are interested in us because they are us you know that's that that's where it's like it's a family thing you know uh whereas other beings that are from worlds other advanced worlds worlds in other constellations in in other solar systems visiting us would they have that such that intense interest and fascination with us and obsession almost with us um, when they don't have that kind of link with us in any way, um, who knows? But I think not, probably. But uh, yeah. So do do the Magina do they live everywhere on this planet, or only in certain places on this planet? They like, move I, like I live in Florida. Are they here in Florida? Because I have experiences here. So yeah, yeah. They, they, I think they have habitations everywhere. You know, under the oceans in particular. There's a habitation here under Bass Strait. Um, in, in the continental shelf under Bass Strait, like I was, we were talking about earlier. Um, but uh, yeah, they, habitations, underground habitations that lie dormant when it's cold, they, they chase the warmth. Um, they move around. Charles Hallwood talked about this as well, and other people have. Um, and this is what they've said to me as well. They move around. So, you know, Charles Hallwood talked about how they disappear from Nevada in the winter and then they return again and that kind of thing. Um, he he presumed they were going, they were leaving the earth and things like that. But but Charles Hall had a different understanding. He, Charles Hall presumed that they were true aliens from elsewhere, right. and he also he said he didn't know where they were from, and he'd asked them, and they were evasive. They wouldn't respond. But he suspected they might be from Arcturus system, and he gave a couple of reasons for that in his writing. But it never occurred to him they might be indigenous to Earth in any way. Um, you know, even though they were almost identical to us, uh, but still. Um, yeah um under the under the oceans and yeah florida yeah i'm sure everywhere really they have now there were one million of them they said a few years ago more recently they said to me there are now 12 million of us which means that there's been some kind of interaction again with their own original home with their own timeline um uh and the understanding i have of that is that as timelines become less similar to each other and they become divorced from each other. It can be difficult to navigate your way back. This is something that Dan Burrish had said as well. He thought there was a possibility that they couldn't get back, that some of them had been left here as a voluntary contingent to stay, but most had left, and now they couldn't get home even if they wanted to. But it would appear that that's not the case, uh, that they have, that there's been a, a huge amount, an influx of them. I mean, not a huge amount compared to the populations of us, which are right. billions, but... It's still 12 million now as opposed to just what had been one 
So in the last half a year or something like that, all of a sudden it's just a lot more. Um, but um, but yeah, yeah, that and they'll they'll be dormant. So if it's cold, if it's cold weather where you are in your part of the world, you're less likely to have interactions with them than when it's your your summer. Um, so do do you see them in the future, near future, uh, like living with us, like? Uh, like revealing themselves eventually and just living with us? I, I think I'm pretty sure that they will reveal themselves, even though I think it's probably going to be a slow drip bed sort of process. We're being prepared for their existence, I think, through television, enculturated, you know, baptized in like understandings about multiverses and time travel, you know, where you can't really turn the television on anymore without it being like kids shows science fiction shows superhero franchises and all this kind of stuff right. absolutely obsessed with concepts relating to the multiverse at the moment and have been for like about 10 years or something now um there's always been a little bit of that you know over the past however many years decades or whatever but it seems to be really ramping up and the kids of today are just completely fluent in ideas about multiverses you know um and and understanding that you know them as a concept and, and and having that in their vocabulary whereas even just like 20 years ago it wasn't a thing people didn't really talk about that as much people would be more interested in the idea of the extraterrestrial hypothesis the beings that are visiting us simply being from other planets elsewhere coming to us and not really having an understanding of the possibility of other worlds right here but alongside us that they can uh leap from but um yeah i think uh that that's a a sign that we're being sort of immersed in understandings that are changing our worldview that will mean we'll have more of a positive acceptance of them eventually when they do re reveal themselves. But um, I think it has to be a fairly slow process because they could do a lot of damage culturally, religiously, uh, economically, and all this if they just sort of dropped in. Um, and... Um, but they will eventually, yeah. And the idea of them living side by side with us, I don't know. I'm not quite sure about that, though. You know, I, I think, I suspect anyway, that they'll always be separate and apart in some way. Even if we have an amicable relationship with them, we know they're there. We know where they are. We'll end up being, it won't be that you'll, you know, you, you go to the restaurant and there's Mudgina ordering before you or something like that. I, I don't. I don't That'd think be cool. it'll ever get to that stage. It would be cool, yeah. yeah that'd be awesome. I, I, I suspect not, but I think it'll what what I see is happening probably it'll be things like there'll be understandings that we don't go to certain places at certain times of the year. That there'll be mountain mountainous regions in certain parts of the world that it, for certain months of the year we are warned we really shouldn't go there and we know why. We know that they're there and it becomes sort of accepted in the in our culture like it was i think to some societies as we were talking about like centuries ago you know where they sort of had agreements with with them um and knew what to do and what not to do so everyone could not offend each other and all that kind of thing and also them getting genetic material from us or interbreeding with us will become hopefully more open where there's volunteers rather than being you know, all covert and, um, and, uh, you know, sneaking through our world like poltergeists and dark, shadowy 
demonic entities that we don't understand exactly what they are and um and uh, and succubi and incubi and all that kind of stuff you know right yeah that they'll they'll end up being acknowledged as being in our world but not actually be like living next door literally so is what i think probably yeah so to end it all brother um Thanks again for doing this. What's in the future Thank for you, Ryan Musgrave Evans, man? What What do you got next? Uh, another book, documentary. Uh, yeah, well, I'm America's writing. Got talent, you know. What do you? I'm <laughs> <laughs> writing uh, another book. Yeah, and the, and the and Philip Mantle, English ufologist Philip yep. Mantle, um, has his publishing company, Flying Disc Press, and he's. I've had a yarn to him about the new book, and he's like, "Yeah, he's going to publish it early next year." Awesome. It's not. It's not finished yet. I've told him that I'll send it his way for him to have a peek at sometime in November. That's what I'm aiming at having it finished by. Um, but a lot's going into that. A lot of my spare time, a lot of my focus, a lot of research. Um, and yeah, that's, um, that's what, that's, that's what my mind's bent on at the moment. And I'm barely thinking I'm really nerding into that. I'm not really thinking about much else to tell you the truth. Um, so yeah, but thanks so much for having me, man. Yeah, no worries, man. The last question I have, because I didn't, I, I, yeah, it's gonna escape me and it's gonna bother me. You 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 wrote a book already, and you're writing another book. What do the Majina think about? Do they know that you're doing this? What do they think about that? Yeah, well, I think that's part of the holding me to the bargain thing and all that kind of stuff as well. Where they wanted me that I have a role. I had a role to play, and that's what I sort of thought of like as being a tool to them in a certain way, you know. Um, of, of, of assisting them in some kind of very slow disclosure as being a part of the puzzle, one of the cogs, you know, in the, in the system. Um, and uh, ex- try, trying to prove to people beyond reasonable doubt through profiling and pattern recognition through different cases that they exist and establishing that. Um, and yeah, so they are okay with the books um, and, and also with me doing my channel and things like that. Um, and, uh, yes, I wouldn't be doing it unless they were, and they encourage me and things like that. And I, I wouldn't even really be interested in UFOs and ET kind of like ufology and whatnot, or even probably any more folklore and things like that as much if it weren't for them and if it weren't for them allowing me to remember all of these experiences, which is right. another aspect as well. If you're having experiences and you're remembering them, they don't usually make mistakes, although I think they sometimes do make mistakes, but they don't usually make mistakes. So if you've had an experience that you think is an ET related thing or, or a haunting or something like that, and you know what's happening and you're conscious of it, they're allowing you to remember because they could very easily just suppress all the thoughts right. and memories about it and there'd be no issue, you know? So I was always cognizant of that, but, but I'm being allowed these to to remember these experiences and they're kind of like a gift in that way um which i'm very grateful for um and uh yeah so so um if they expressed to me that i wasn't supposed to be doing it i wouldn't because there's no point then i'm only doing it if i think it's beneficial to them and to us and all that kind of stuff um so if they were to say to me no 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 you got it wrong why are you writing these books about us you stop I'd be like, oh yeah, whatever. I'm only doing it because you asked me to do it. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I understand. But, uh, yeah. La- last question, I promise. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- I-, I still have my own experiences. Uh, 
I want to know what's yeah, going yeah. on. Like, how do I approach? How what what would be my approach? Well, I'd recommend reaching out. You know, in the sense of thinking about them, asking them what's going on, suggesting to them if you're interested in this, having more experiences, or if you're already having experiences, uh, them allowing you to remember more of them, um, and and just basically communicating with them in a way that is respectful and polite but also but not to the point of it being like formal they don't they don't seem to necessarily in my opinion in in my personal experience they don't respond well to high level formality they seem to respond well to sort of like a human interaction that although you're being polite enough and you're not being aggressive and things like that it's still on a like a a friendly level like like um like just chatting to them if you in the same way that you'd talk to a person that you know it's to homo sapiens that you're just being friendly with them and that kind of stuff and not putting them too much on a pedestal you know but also not being too negative towards them just treating them as a human you know right which they are really kinds of humans you know um, I, I call the Majina homo orionus because of their relationship with orion um and um whether or not they're closely enough genetically to us to really be like a subspecies like homo sapiens orionus instead of like and then we would be in contradistinction homo sapiens sapiens or whether they are different enough to actually be considered a different species homo orionus either way they're still the same genus like they're still hominins you know they're still humans um and they respond well if you treat them that way you know Awesome, my brother. This was awesome, awesome stuff. Um, send me, uh, if you can, uh, uh, all the links that you would want people to go to. And uh, you can send me a little picture, too, of yourself so I can put in my thumbnail for the YouTube channel. And once I'm oh, done, yeah. cool, cool. I'll send you the link to that. I'll send you also the links to the interviews that I've done um, as well. But uh, thank you very oh, much. Yeah. And uh, keep Thanks me so much, uh, in the loop, man, with your book. When it drops, I'd like to have you back on if you're willing to come back on. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, this has been great fun, dude. Thanks so much. Yeah, brother. Keep the beard, man. <laughs> what you, yeah, like, and what you have to say, you're blowing me away with your experiences as well. That's so cool. Oh. And your relationship, your connection to Nellis and stuff. Right. Just, but there's people out there, trust so cool. me, that have way better stories. Some of them don't come out. Like, I know some people that have told me, you know, we'll talk again and I'll tell you some some stories uh, that, yeah, that sure. now I'm thinking I know are Majina based, but we'll talk. Very All cool. right, brother. Cool. Okay. Thanks so much. See you later, dude. my man. Peace. Thanks.